0: So what's interesting is actually Hebrews in a, in a very loose and agile way <laughs> is kind of speaking of Christ in ways that uh, on the one hand presuppose his humanity over here, on the other hand just ascribe divinity to him uh, and doesn't really give us any warning between those two things. It's not sort of signaling clearly, hey guys, now I'm talking about Jesus as a human being, right? Um, and so there's a sense in which, it, w- it you know, there's a kind of agility in reading that's required of us uh, to ask
1: is it speaking of Christ in a human or a divine way? Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo magazine. An Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When you read the scriptures, well, how do you read the scriptures? Uh, Many times, uh, especially in my conversations with pastors or churchgoers, sometimes even scholars, we tend to approach the scriptures as if we must keep all that theology out. In other words, we read the scriptures, especially if it's the Old Testament, as if we're not allowed to look ahead to the New Testament, let alone introduce anything theological that might influence or perhaps bias bias us or even give us a certain prejudice that would, well, read into the text, a type of eisegesis. But could it be that in taking this approach, we might actually be harming or even missing out on so many of the riches that, well, the history of exegesis and interpretation has to offer us. Could it be the case that looking to, say, a creed uh, is really meant to help us to be a type of tool as we interpret the text and to maybe see things that we might otherwise miss? Well, if you've been reading the Scriptures as a Christian for some time, you may realize that, well, reading the Scriptures is something that you have to do Christologically. In fact, when we open the New Testament, we begin to see this blossom in so many different ways. The New Testament authors uh, come to the person and the work of Christ, but they do so understanding that, well, the entire canon has much to say about Christ, who he is, and what he is accomplishing. Did you also know that when we open uh, so many of the historic creeds of the faith, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedon definition, they understood this as well. And they actually intended Christians and the church at large to open the scriptures with these creeds side by side in order to help them not only understand who Christ is, but actually to help them and even to safeguard them From any number of mistakes, errors, even heresies that could derail, uh, well, Christology itself. So many of these issues are so relevant today when we talk about exegesis. And you may notice that how we approach the text of Scripture, the canon as a whole, well, it can have significant consequences for everything, well, everything from the Trinity to our Christology. It's for this reason that I've asked uh, really an important uh, scholar in his own right, Bobby Jamieson, to come on the Credo podcast and to talk to us not only about Christology, especially in a book like Hebrews, but also about hermeneutics. How do we read the scriptures? How do we read a book like Hebrews in a way that is faithful, not only to the scriptures themselves, but to a proper understanding of Christology, even historically conveyed and communicated through many of the church creeds. You may know Jamieson from his, uh, well, some of his major books. Uh, Think, for example, of his book, Sound Doctrine, How a Church Grows in the Love and Holiness of God. He's also written a number of books on baptism, the Lord's Supper, and he's also written, more recently, a couple of academic books, Jesus' Death and Heavenly Heavenly Offering in Hebrews. As well as a new book called The Paradox of Sonship Christology and the Epistle of Hebrews. He is associate pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Bobby, thank you for joining me on the Credo podcast.
0: It's very kind of you to have me.
2: You know, one of the things I've appreciated about your work is uh, you not only uh, are addressing issues as significant as Christology, but you're actually doing so in conversation with the great tradition before us, uh, so many of the church fathers, for example, as well as some of the medieval theologians, you think of like a Thomas Aquinas, uh, who you engage at different points, but you're also doing this uh, really in conversation with the scriptures. And I, I think this is why I'm so excited about uh, your work, because here you are uh, very much as a scholar in New Testament, and yet you're believe it or not, you're taking theology seriously. And I know that sounds silly saying that, but, uh, so often in the past, uh, these disciplines tend to be divided, even divorced from each other. Theology, uh, is, is treated as something else entirely and something to be kept away, kept away from biblical studies, uh, whether Old Testament or New Testament. So I, I think the first question I want to ask you is what in the world has happened to you? Have you just, uh, given up on biblical studies and and just decided you're going to be a theologian? Or maybe is there possibly uh, something to say for actually reading the Scriptures theologically?
0: Yeah, I think as soon as I began to read theology and biblical studies, it was a sort of strange puzzle to me why they seemed so far apart in terms of these modern academic disciplines as they're practiced uh, in universities and even often in seminaries. Uh, So I think I was an undergraduate and I was studying music, but that's a whole other story. When I started getting really into reading theology, it was just strange to me that these things were kind of held apart. And I think I had some sense Uh, From some of the classical theologians in the history of the church, people like Augustine or Calvin, uh, that these things were not divided and totally distinct disciplines for them, but they're kind of doing each together, doing both all the time. Um, so I would, I think it's just, it's always been, uh, uh, I've always been drawn to exegesis. Uh, I love Greek and Hebrew. I love wrestling with the details of the text. I love that process of trying to kind of patiently hear it and submit to it and ferret out any relevant detail. Um, so I've always been drawn to that, but at the same time, I think I've always been drawn to, uh, well, the Bible is evidently a theological document. It's about the God who made all things, the God who sustains all things, uh, the God who's the beginning and end of all things, uh, the God who has a plan for summing up all things in Christ. Um, so just uh, just a kind of a surface reading of the text, uh, this whole thing's about God and his purposes. And so, yeah, I think i've I've had at least an interest. It's been kind of a you know a, a grain of sand in the oyster for a long time about why have these things been divided. And separated, and so in a sense, my my formal training culminated in uh, a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Um, but I've kind of had those theological interests all along. And this, in some ways, this book on Hebrews, the paradox of sonship, in some ways, it's kind of the fruit of just long-term chewing on that. Uh, why are these two things so far apart? And really trying to use theological resources to do exegesis. If you're thinking about the method of the book, or what's a little bit distinct, um, as Fred Sanders put. It to me. He was an early reader of the book. He said, "You know, a lot of books uh, try to use exegesis for theological purposes. This one is using theology for exegetical purposes." Yeah, and I think that, yeah, that pretty much sums it up.
2: Yeah, yeah, I like the way I like the way you put that, or the way that you know Fred Sanders put that. Uh, oftentimes, you know, I'm I'm operating in the world of systematic theology, and of course, the best systematic theology is taking exegesis seriously. Uh, But sometimes we lament (laughs) that, uh, especially in, you think of the just loads and and legions and legions of of biblical commentaries that come out uh, every year and over the decades. Well, uh, so oftentimes, uh, Old Testament or New Testament commentaries, they don't actually engage uh, theological questions. Or if they do, uh, they don't engage the voices of uh, the theologians of the past, uh, whether it's an Athanasius or an Augustine, and 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 so many others. Uh, Maybe you could speak to that for a minute, because it sounds like what you're saying is it's not just about utilizing theology as a discipline for exegesis, but and I know this from your from your books, uh, you you actually. Want to engage uh, theological ideas that have been retrieved uh, from, say, the great tradition in a way that helps you become a more faithful exegete? Would you say it that way?
0: Yes, yes, certainly. So um, in this book, I do sort of craft a toolkit drawn from the kind of classical creedal consensus of Christology, uh, with figures like Athanasius and Cyril and Gregory of Nazianzus being especially prominent. But as you mentioned, even including uh, sort of medieval synthesizers like Aquinas and so on. Um, and I try to I try to kind of discern an exegetical toolkit there, and then apply it to a live exegetical debate in modern scholarship. Uh, So it's not that I'm sort of turning away from modern scholarship, uh, but that I'm trying to use these resources kind of developed from the theological tradition uh, as a way in uh, to provide a fresh angle on a modern debate. And I think to your broader point, Matthew, about, you know, what's missing in uh, an easy majority of modern biblical commentaries would be even where those commentators engage Uh, a range of pre-modern interpreters. I think what they're often missing is a sense of the kind of exegetical tools, uh, exegetical categories, exegetical strategies, even sometimes you could say exegetical rules that uh, an interpreter like Athanasius or Cyril uh, or Aquinas would kind of naturally bring to the text. There's a sort of exegetical grammar uh, that these authors are working with um, that if you... Uh, there, there's certain questions they'll naturally ask that I think oftentimes are are very good and fair and valid questions to ask of the text, that even if a modern commentator might sort of pick out a citation here or there, I think they're kind of missing uh, some of the exegetical uh, implications that classical Christian doctrine uh, has for exegesis. So mm. you might say they're, they're uh, appropriating some of these things a little bit more piecemeal, whereas I'm trying to kind of apprentice myself To the way that some of these people uh, studied scripture, not in an uncritical way, not to say they're right about everything or whatever Athanasius says, I'm going to agree with it. Uh, But an apprenticeship like in a craft uh, or apprenticeship like in discipleship that you learn from more mature believers. I'm sort of treating uh, an Athanasius, Cyril, Augustine, et cetera, as a, a mature interpreter worth learning from and critically seeing what they model Uh, in in how they, and especially, I think, in the most theological areas of exegesis, where where these are texts speaking directly to the personal work of Christ, or texts bearing witness to the mystery of the Trinity. I think we stand to gain the most from those classical interpreters who really spent uh, so much of their life's work engaging these issues from the Scriptures.
2: Mm. Now, in a second, I do want uh, you to speak to uh, some, at least, of those tools or that toolkit that you mentioned, and uh, we can we can throw out some examples in a second. But maybe before we do that, we should uh, answer an objection at this point because you know some will be listening and they'll they'll be thinking, well, it sounds as if uh, if if we go this route, it sounds as if you know a, a creed, for example, um, might actually. Uh, determine or in the worst way uh read something into the text of scripture uh that's not there simply for the sake of of uh this type of of retri- retrieval and uh th- or or theological interpretation that you're talking about so so just to give an example uh you've studied a lot with uh the book of Hebrews and you've looked at the christology of Hebrews in different ways especially trying to understand sonship now someone might say well uh, we need to hold off on looking at something like uh, the the definition of Chalcedon. You think, for example, of uh, so many of the fathers who came together uh, in, in light of uh, different heretical, Christological uh, threats, uh, even heresies, uh, that were uh, leaving all kinds of questions in the air about how should we understand the hypostatic union? What does it mean for Christ to be to be one person and and what are these two natures and, and how do we understand uh the human and the divine nature? Is it is it appropriate, and if so, in what way is it appropriate for us as as readers of a book like Hebrews, as we're trying to understand the Christology of Hebrews, to open our eyes and look beyond the pages of Hebrews, so maybe even a little bit to the side and and look at, say, uh, the the definition of Chalcedon, which outlines uh, certain Christological beliefs that are considered orthodox?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question and well stated. Um, I'd have a few responses to that. You know, one that's interesting um, is is that uh, in Hebrews, say, there are quite a number of scholars who recognize that there's a strong resemblance at the very least between what Hebrews says about Jesus and what the Chalcedonian definition says about Jesus. So I can think even of one Jewish scholar who, uh, in the footnotes of a Jewish study Bible, says, You know, Hebrews Christology is basically that of the Council of Chalcedon or something like that. <laughs> one divine person in two natures. So this is a Jewish scholar who has no vested interest in, in a Christian theological reading of this text. Uh, It's like do a study Bible on the new Testament or something like that. I believe it's Amy Jill Levine. And I might even have that in a footnote in the book. Um, But, you know, just, uh, a, a relatively speaking disinterested observer who sees that kind of commonality. Or someone, or a modern scholar like a Richard Bauckham uh, is very happy. And of course, he himself is a Christian theologian. Uh, but a modern scholar like R- Richard Bauckham frequently observes about Hebrews that, yeah, uh, wh- a single divine person who exists with a divine and human nature, that's a pretty good fit with the text of Hebrews. And it, it's hard to say all that Hebrews says about Jesus kind of language like that. And that's the next point I would make, is that uh, the theological distinctions and the kind of uh, terminological refinements and the sort of conceptual clarity you'll find in a creed uh, in something like the Chalcedonian definition, I think one helpful metaphor is to regard that as a grammar of the text of scripture. You know, if um, Matthew called me to set up this interview. Well, Matthew's the subject, call is the verb, me is the direct object, and it's in the object case because that's how we do it in English to say who's calling whom, right? And you're using terms that are a bit more abstract, subject, verb, direct object, uh, and it goes on from there. But you're doing it just to describe what's there in that sentence, Matthew called me. Um, So there's a sense in which, It's not adding anything to the text. It's just explaining. It's just analyzing. It's just giving you a conceptual handle on what's there. And so I think that's a category that modern scholarship in the biblical studies world tends not to have. Mm. There's this kind of privileging of historical categories. There is a real firewall against any type of theological analysis. Um, But Hebrews, and this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but Hebrews ascribes divinity to Jesus, ascribes humanity to him treats him as one single acting subject, okay, well, you, you've got to say something about how he's divine. You've got to say something about how he's human. You've got to say something about how he hangs together as a single agent. And I think, um, I think even in the intention of the framers, this is to veer into historical theology a little bit, even in the intention of the framers uh, of the definition of Chalcedon, what they were trying to do was not solve mysteries or give any kind of exhaustive explanation of how divinity and humanity unite in Christ. They confess that's ineffable. They confess that's a mystery beyond our comprehension. Uh, In a sense, what they're doing is putting up mental and verbal guardrails so that we can continue to coherently profess and confess that mystery. And so I think sometimes there's a bit of a misunderstanding of what these classical creeds and confessions are doing. They're not getting rid of mysteries. Uh, They're putting up boundaries so that we can continue to confess them precisely as mysteries. Uh, And when we recognize that they're speaking uh, in a more technical register, they're speaking in a more abstract register, that's analogous to how You know, talking about subjects and indirect objects and so on uh, is is a grammar of a very simple sentence like uh, Matthew called me on the phone. Mm -hmm. So I I do think there's ways of recognizing, you know, David Diego is a very helpful systematic theologian who's done good work on this. He talks about... Scripture and the creed uh, make an, uh, essentially the same judgment about the person of Christ. They render the same judgment. There's a material continuity. But they do so in different conceptual registers. They do so with different sort of vocabulary. And that makes sense. Hebrews is a sermon. It's preaching to Christians about why it's worth it to follow Jesus and not and not fall away. Uh, so it's speaking in a different register, uh, but it's essentially two ways of saying what is in essence the same thing. You, you want to be careful not to import a level of refinement, specificity, and so on uh, into the text that's not there. But we have to find a way of saying, yeah, actually, these are two ways of saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's no way to get from the text to any kind of theological confession. There's no way to summarize what it's teaching. There's no way to publicly confess it. Uh, so the creeds are are compact distillations uh, that you can sort of double click on and find the substance of it in scripture. Uh, I've sent us in a few different directions. I better kind of stop there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, this is uh, <laughs> in fact what you just said. Um, I, I I thought of uh, actually you you quote uh, Zacharias or uh, Sinus yeah, That's and, right. At one point when you're you're making this you're making this very point when you talk about how uh, you know. Something like the definition of calcinon, how this is meant to be a type of hearing aid. Uh, I, I like that that imagery there because um, it's not as if uh, we're we're trying to bypass the text to get to something else. We're actually uh, using uh, a confessional statement in order, or 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 in this case, a uh, uh, a type of creedal statement in order to actually hear. The text better, <laughs> and and even maybe be attuned to certain things that uh, we might miss or we might not understand how to articulate uh, when when someone challenges us in, in so many ways. Uh, Ursinus, I'll just quote him here. He he says the purpose of studying doctrine is that we may be well prepared for the reading, understanding, and exposition of the holy scriptures. So so this is actually a, a very Old but quite a a fresh uh, perspective uh, that that I think gets at the very point you're making. Now that that being the case, uh, w- and, and I hope listeners will will maybe even try this out. Uh, maybe sit down with the Book of Hebrews, and uh, you can just Google it and pull up uh, the the definition of Chalcedon, and uh, I think you will discover that your reading of Hebrews and especially your understanding of of the Christology of Hebrews, well, it will be greatly improved uh, by this type of exercise. But but with all that said, maybe we can turn to a few tools because we're talking about sure. the task of exegesis, and we're, when we're talking about God in Christ or or God in the world or spe- something very specific like the incarnation, there's, uh, well, as we're walking on this road, there, there can be any number of uh, ditches that we might, you know, trip and fall into, um, sometimes by not paying attention to some of these classical theological tools or distinctions that that actually give us a quite a bit of precision when interpreting, uh, say, Christology and Hebrews. Now, one of these is the difference between what we might call theology and economy, and of course, uh, that's going to take us uh, to a discussion of what's called partitive exegesis. But before we get there, Bobby, maybe you can, uh, for for those who are listening, maybe they they've heard of this distinction between theology and economy, but it's a bit fuzzy. Uh, what what is it that what do we mean by this? And. Um, especially when we're talking about Christology and Hebrews, how can this distinction be helpful?
0: Sure, yeah. So theology and economy would be a widespread way that especially church fathers would use, although it continues on, and that shorthand still gets used later. It's just not as common today. It's a kind of shorthand distinction where it's using both as a kind of term of art. Uh, Theology refers to speaking of God as he is in himself. And, and uh, by extension, it also refers to speaking of Christ insofar as he is divine. Uh, that's why John the Evangelist earned the title of the theologian. Uh, in the early church because he so plainly and transparently spoke of the divinity of Christ from the very first sentence. It didn't just mean John's a smart guy. He knows a lot about God. It means his gospel is uh, even more explicit in its testimony to Jesus's divinity. Um, So theology in that sense is speaking about God as he is in himself, speaking about Christ insofar as he's divine. Uh, And economy would refer to God's plan for ordering all things, specifically his plan of of salvation. And then specifically, uh, economy in this sense comes from the Greek word uh, oikonomia, which means a kind of arrangement or disposition. Uh, So economy in the sense of God's plan, which culminates in salvation. And of course, the, the decisive act that secures our salvation is Christ's whole saving incarnate mission. So from his becoming incarnate to his earthly life, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, oftentimes, patristic theologians will use that phrase economy as a shorthand, uh, both for the, the sort of fact of the incarnation and for the whole sweep of what Christ accomplished. And the reason this is an exegetical tool, you could say, that you can actually use to read scripture, or you could even view it as an exegetical lens. Uh, that helps you to discern what's really there and you know, can correct your vision, correct uh, a misunderstanding you might bring to the text, or that, that could naturally arise. The reason that theology economy distinction is so helpful is, is uh, as, as one scholar has put it, uh, to employ it in partitive exegesis, meaning uh, scripture speaks of Christ. He's one person, one agent, one acting subject, but it speaks of him in a twofold manner. Uh, Some things are said of him as divine and other things are said of him as human. So we need to recognize that Scripture speaks of the one Christ in two different registers, two different manners. Uh, Augustine likens this to listening uh, to a kind of um, piece of music where you can make out two different lines, right? In harmony, you can think of a bass line and a soprano line. Um, So you're listening for two different uh, registers of speech about Christ that are that that don't contradict each other. Uh, There's room for both in Scripture. And so, very practically, you can even just start in the first few verses. Uh, of hebrews and ask is this speaking of christ as divine or is this speaking of christ in so far as he has become a human being for us and for our salvation it's about the manner in which it's speaking to christ or the point of view from which it's speaking about christ so chapter one verse two in these last days he has spoken to us by his son well that's referring to Christ's whole incarnate ministry he has come to us he has showed up on earth and that's how he's revealed god to us Whom he appointed the heir of all things. That one gets a little tricky, just continuing in verse 2, because on the one hand, uh, to be the one who possesses all things, well, that's really a divine prerogative. Only God is the Lord, the possessor, the owner of all. But interestingly, uh, he's appointed the heir of all things, meaning uh, it comes to him as an inheritance. So how can it be both this sovereign possession of everything but, but it comes to him as an inheritance. And I think the answer is uh, that very phrase requires us to understand Christ as God incarnate. Uh, he possesses all things insofar as he is God. He's given all things. He obtains them as an inheritance insofar as he became man to save us. And there's much more we could say about that, but just continuing on in this same verse, the very next phrase is, through whom also he created the world. Uh, so, so Christ is a active co-agent with the father, uh, inseparably acting with the father to create all things. So right there, even just in these first, well, really one verse, Hebrews 1, 2, he's come to earth and become incarnate. That's how he's the, the revelation of God in person. He's appointed heir of all things, which really has an aspect of both his humanity and his divinity. And, of course, through whom he created the world, well, that's an exclusively divine prerogative. That's an exclusively divine attribute to be the creator of all. Uh, to say that is true of, of the Son as it is of the Father is to ascribe divinity to him. So what's interesting is actually Hebrews, in a, in a very loose and agile way, <laughs> is kind of speaking of Christ. In ways that, uh, on the one hand, presuppose his humanity over here; on the other hand, just ascribe divinity to him, and uh, doesn't really give us any warning between those two things. It's not sort of signaling clearly, "Hey, guys, now I'm talking about Jesus as a human being," <laughs> right? Um, and so there's a sense in which it, it, you know, there's a kind of agility in reading that's required of us. Uh, to ask, is it speaking of Christ in a human or a divine way? And even just having those two categories as as a, a matter of pre-understanding. As a Christian, I confess that Jesus is Christ incarnate, the Lord and Savior. Uh, he's God incarnate, excuse me. And um, bringing that knowledge with me to the text, uh, actually, I've got these kind of two buckets into which These attributions, these ascriptions of who Christ is, uh, it fits naturally. Some things said of him purely as insofar as he's God, like in the very next phrase. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's an attribution of divinity. Um, But then we keep going. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, How did he make purification for sins? Well, it was the whole scope of his saving incarnate work culminating in his death, resurrection, Mm -hmm. and ascension to heaven, all of which he performed as a human being. So that, you know, the Hebrews drops us into some very theological territory. And that theology-economy distinction or partitive exegesis, it basically gives you two buckets into which to sort these statements. And I think those two buckets are not uh, any artificial imposition on the text. I don't think it's just pulling a rabbit out of a hat to say, oh, look, you know, we can magically discover our theology in the text. Isn't that convenient? No, I think what it's actually doing is it's finding a way to understand and organize and have room for the fullness of what Hebrews is saying about Jesus. Otherwise, there'd be a temptation to treat those things as contradictory, to treat those things as being in competition with each other. I mean, in a sense, the whole heart of the Arian debate in the fourth century boils down to exegesis. And John Baird does a very nice job of this in the first volume of The Nicene Faith. Uh, It boils, even at the very beginning of that book, the whole thing boils down to exegesis. In that, Arians insisted on a kind of univocal ascription Mm. of everything scripture says about Christ. It must just somehow be speaking about his intrinsic nature. Whereas... What's common to all pro-Nicene theology is this recognition, this awareness uh, that Scripture is speaking about Christ in a twofold way. And we have to sort of give room to let each of those statements breathe. We have to give them their own space. We don't sort of shave off one to make it fit with the other. And that's where Athanasius, for instance, uh, he gives a sort of programmatic statement of this exegetical rule. And he basically says, yeah, throughout the whole Scripture— You can find a twofold account of Christ, uh, that some things are said of him as God uh, and some as a human being. Actually, if I can just quickly find that statement in the book, it's a nice way. Yeah, here we go. Here's Athanasius from his uh, Orations Against Arians. The scope and character of the scripture, as we have often said, is this, that there is in it a double account concerning the Savior, that he was ever God and is the Son, being the word and radiance and wisdom of the Father, and that afterwards, taking flesh from the Virgin, Mary the godbearer, he became man. Uh, so in a sense, Athanasius is just laying out the incarnation as an exegetical principle or rule. And I think that bears great fruit, uh, even in those first few verses of Hebrews.
2: So well said. And I, I mean, we really can't uh, add to that in terms of... Uh, I mean, when we talk about partitive exegesis, we can't add to it in terms of, of thinking, well, uh, these categories must be mistaken. We must look for, for some type of additional other category. Because like you just mentioned, or you know, as Athanasius just said, uh, actually these categories are, are helping us, uh, tools so to speak, they're actually helping us carefully do justice to the text. I think that that was so missed in the fourth century because— on the one hand, so many of these Arians are claiming that uh, they're they're actually just being faithful to the text, but but in reality, uh they are ignoring some of these key principles of partitive exegesis as as you just pointed out. I mean, we could go even a little bit further and you do this as well to talk about twofold predication. I love what uh you quote Thomas Aquinas at one point who says for attributes of the divine nature are predicated of Christ in virtue of his divine nature, while attributes of the human nature are predicated of him in virtue of his human nature. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, Thomas, you know, he's he's speaking here at 10,000 feet about the hypostatic right. union, but uh, if we break that down, actually, uh, as you just mentioned, with even the opening of a book like Hebrews, well, that twofold predication does justice to, uh, well, both the divinity and the humanity of Christ that we see at the very beginning of the book, if we lose, if we just dispense with it, goodness, we we actually uh, have not only dispensed with crucial aspects of our Christology, but, but we've done so with some poor, even sloppy exegesis.
0: Yeah. And you know, I think one, um, one, I don't know if the review has been published, but there was a very thoughtful, very sympathetic reviewer of my book uh, who's an evangelical New Testament scholar. Um, and, you know, he was sort of asking about what what exact role do these tools or exegetical strategies play? Like, are you saying we can't see this truth without them, but if we can just see the truth in the text, do we really need them? And I think that was a, you know, that's a thoughtful question, a thoughtful critique. I think my, just to sort of try to advance the conversation By, you know, think about the use of these tools. I think my basic response to him would be, I think there's a positive feedback loop of growth and understanding, whereby, uh, you know, if there's a right pre-understanding of the substance of what the text teaches, that will help us rightly see the details uh, of the text. And as we engage with the text and further refine our theological understanding, it's like a process of of gaining ever more accurate lenses in your glasses uh, that these tools help us, you know, evidently, objectively. There's a lot of debate and argument in modern New Testament scholarship about all this stuff in Hebrews, uh, which really does pivot around an understanding of is Jesus truly God and truly man? There's plenty of debate in modern scholarship about that. So I think there are, and because there's a kind of principled refusal to use these types of tools, I would see that as a kind of needless handicap. you know, we're we're leaving stuff aside that really would help us. Uh, and so in a sense, I'm trying to say, I suspect that if uh, if an evangelical with a more kind of biblicist bent, you know, says, "Well, yes, I, I get what you're saying. I agree with the theology, but are you? Do we really need to bring the theology into exegesis?" I think I would say to them something like, "Well, I think you might be mis- uh, you might be underestimating hmm. <laughs> how much your theology is actually helping your exegesis. Yes. Because when you take it away, or when there's a principled refusal to use theological categories, uh, a lot of uh, debate or misunderstanding, or you know, giving an inadequate account of certain parts of the text, I think does really ensue. Does
2: that make sense? Yes, and and maybe we can. Uh, I mean, when we're thinking about exegesis, maybe maybe it's even helpful at this point to to avoid some of that that biblicist uh, mistake. To to point out that well, not only are are we not realizing how much theology is informing our exegesis of the text, as much as we might try to deny it? Uh, but we also may misunderstand that well, theology actually should be informing our exegesis of the text. I, I think this is one of the the main divides uh, between how we see the scriptures read uh, in the modern period and how we see the scriptures read. Uh, by by the great tradition in the pre-modern period is they they don't have this same allergy <laughs> to to understanding okay, theology uh, is actually supposed to help me so that I I interpret the text in a way that's that's actually accurate and faithful. instead we've divided those apart and ironically enough we've done it we've done it in the name of the Bible. Now now that said, yeah uh, did you um, want to add to that? Oh, just just briefly,
0: I I was just going to say where I uh, affirm the instinct and want to make common cause with someone who who has a slightly more biblicist reflex is to say, I am ultimately interested in what the text says, understanding it, explaining it, proclaiming it, living it out. That's my goal in all of it. And I think what helps us get there is a positive feedback loop where exegesis gives rise to theology, and theology in turn helps exegesis, kind of from text to theology back to text. Hmm. And I'm interested in justifying this at the bar of exegesis. Are these the right tools for the job? The proof of the tools is do they get the job done? Right. Uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and the proof of the theology is in the reading. Mm. Um, so the, the true test of the theology is, does it help us read the Bible better? And in that sense, you're still submitting that theology to a test. It's corrigible. We're still talking about sola scriptura. We're still talking about, in a way, it's just saying the analogy of faith, that Scripture interprets Scripture. So to talk about theology and forming exegesis is really to say— Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, It's not to impose something alien. That's that's the only just kind of, yeah, addendum I wanted to make.
2: Very good. Now, maybe we can uh, channel this whole discussion in the direction of Christology for a minute, because you've written a lot on this, and specifically Christology in the book of Hebrews. Um, So much of what we've just said uh, really, really comes into play at this point. Because you've pointed out uh, in, in a bit of a survey of Christology uh, and the way that biblical scholars approach the, the book of Hebrews that, well, uh, it's, it's actually quite rare to see uh, biblical scholars reading Christology off the pages of Hebrews in a way that is, well, Christological <laughs> uh, or, or even creedal. Uh, sometimes that is considered, well, it's looked at with great suspicion or even rejected. But you've made this point in an interesting way. Uh, for example, as you have surveyed uh, some of these approaches, you've said, "Well, there are some out there who uh, really read Hebrews and decide that well, the Christ that they're reading there is less is less than divine. Uh, the Son is is what Jesus became." Uh, to put it to use your phrase, and then there are others yeah. who who will speak in terms of. Uh, And this this is actually quite a popular approach, uh, being son and becoming son as as if these two things are antithetical or or they can't be reconciled with one another. And and and, well, very frankly, over the last several decades, uh, goodness, even more than that, uh, this approach, being son versus becoming son, really has been quite appealing to so many. And then you have others who. Uh, you you make this point that they they argue for something right and true, that, well, when we read Hebrews, we're noticing that the Son is a Son already in terms of, of what we might call divine Christology. Uh, but, but then you go on to say, well, as true as that is, uh, could there also be another aspect here? Yes, the Son is the divine Son, uh, if we if we speak in terms of of our theology, we can say, well, this is the the Son who's begotten from the Father from all eternity, and yet at the same time, uh, you also show by by working your way through Hebrews that well, Hebrews seems to to say something additional that that this is a Son uh, who who is incarnate as well and who accomplishes this great mission of salvation. Dies and and then resurrects and even ascends, and it and and not only that, but Scripture Hebrews in particular starts to use all kinds of language to talk about this son in, in Davidic categories, messianic yep. language as well, high priest. Uh, anyone who's read Hebrews knows how the language of, of of priesthood comes through very strong. What is this? What does this say then about? this language of sonship.
0: Yeah, thank you. And in some ways, you've you've really set up the question of the whole book. So the whole book does uh, use quite a lot of resources and, you know, puts a whole lot of things juggling into the air to really answer a simple question, which is, uh, what does Hebrews mean by calling Jesus son? And uh, you've summarized the options that I see in the, in the scholarly literature nicely. And it, maybe just to take one step back from Hebrews and glance around at, the, uh, at some other places in the New Testament briefly, which I do at the end of the book. There's some striking parallels between things Hebrews says. And for instance, Paul in Romans one four, when he says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, uh, or Peter toward the end of his speech at Pentecost in Acts two thirty six, where he says, "This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ." And in both of those passages, as well as the ones we've alluded to in Hebrews. Um, in which we'll discuss in a minute, Uh, there's something happening to Jesus. There's something that he's becoming. There's some new thing that is somehow added to him after his death, resurrection, uh, and upon his ascension, his his sitting down on God's own throne in heaven. And one way that some more critical skeptical scholars will take those statements is to say well look here you know in the earliest Christology of the New Testament uh, it was adoptionist meaning Jesus was a more human figure and somehow he ascended uh, to this level of divinity and so that that gets you really that first option of Jesus being less than divine there are some people who read Hebrews that way um, but the but the main problem with that is, What we've already seen in Hebrews 1 and several other places in the letter, that there are these full-blown ascriptions of divinity. Uh, To be the one through whom God created the universe or to be the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, that is not compatible with mere humanity. Uh, That can't be, you know, Jesus couldn't have started off as just a man and somehow graduated into that. There is no PhD that will give you that. Uh, There is no political office you could enter into where now, now you start to uphold all things by the word of your power, but you weren't doing that before. So you, there's a problem with saying son is only something Jesus became. But at the same time, there is an element of truth. There's a there's an exegetical pressure that the scholars who see that are feeling. Because Hebrews does really talk as if something new is happening when Jesus is ascending into heaven. And, and so, for instance, just to pick up where we left off in chapter 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become... As much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now good Bible-believing folks who, who naturally confess Christ divinity, they might have a bit of a problem with that become. How did he become superior to angels? Wasn't he always superior to angels? What's going on there? And in a sense, that that's a, that would be a little bit of my quibble with the more, uh, you know, scholars who would uphold an orthodox Christology. But then they wind up saying, well, this is kind of the manifestation of something that was always the case. This is the revelation of something that was already there. And I think the basic answer, I think basically, there's a twofold answer. How can Christ have become superior to the angels? Well, because as chapter two tells us he was made lower than them for a little while. So that's chapter two, verse nine. Uh, In his incarnation, he was made lower than the angels for a little while. And then he was, chapter two, verse nine, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So already you're seeing how a kind of theology economy distinction makes sense out of this surprising assertion that Jesus became superior to angels. Oh, wait a minute. Now I see how that works. If, if you're sort of drawing a graph on a board with a big down arrow, uh, well, now there's that the down arrow is the incarnation. I don't know if you do this, Matthew, when you teach Christology, but when I would lecture in this stuff, I'm often, you know, filling up a whiteboard with sort of U-shaped drawings. Right? You, you can't take that too literally. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but there's exu- there's humil- humiliation and exaltation. Um, there's a down arrow, which is the incarnation, and there's an up arrow, which is his exaltation uh, after his death and resurrection. And so I think uh, what what we need is an incarnational narrative Christology that starts from his divinity, recognizes the fact of the incarnation, and then the other sort of category that comes into this, like you mentioned, is a messianic one, meaning there's a promise to David that one of his sons is going to be God's son, and as that is given in 2 Samuel 7. And as it's developed in passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and Psalm 100, lots of other places in the Old Testament, uh, there is a sonship that's really a Kind of term of art for messianic office, for being enthroned as God's appointed ruler. And what Hebrews is saying, and the reason Hebrews focuses so much on Psalm 110, verse one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, is because Hebrews is zeroing in on the moment when that began to take effect in full. Uh, it's like the difference between a president being elected and then inaugurated, actually sworn into office. There's a sense in which Jesus is designated as Messiah. You can identify him as the Messiah. He really is the one who's going to fulfill all these promises uh, during his earthly career. But then if you ask, well, when does he actually get a throne? When does he start to reign? When do all these promises really come into effect? Hebrews would answer with Psalm 110 verse 1, and by the way, with all the apostles' speeches and acts. Uh, Hebrews would answer, those all started when he sat down on the divine throne in heaven. And so Hebrews sort of starts at the very end of the story, so to speak, from the climax of Jesus' work, his, his sitting down being enthroned in power and glory. And it kind of asks us to reason backwards to, uh, from his incarnation, the fact of it, uh, his divine preexistence, and so on. So what, what Hebrews calls for is a kind of reading with the whole sweep of Jesus' saving economy, reading that whole arc uh, as one unified motion. That he underwent to save us.
2: We've been talking to Bobby Jamieson, who is associate pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's uh, the author of of many different books, like Sound Doctrine, but he also has written uh, a book that we've been talking about: the Paradox of Sonship, Christology, and the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's in the Studies in Christian Doctrine and Scripture series. Uh, Bobby. Uh, it's this, this book that you've written and, and really so much of your, your other work on Hebrews, uh, I, I just want to say to our listeners, uh, it's not—when you come to a book like this, it's not just that you're going to be uh, learning uh, well about so much of, about what you just said, about uh, what does it mean for this son— who is divine? But what, what does it mean then for him to be Messiah? And and what does it mean when he asc- not only resurrects but but then ascends? Not only are you going to be learning so much about this, but you're also going to be learning about how to read the scriptures uh, in a way, uh, well, in a way that is quite theological. And Bobby is is really an example of that. Uh, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, it, oftentimes we are. Uh, looking to exegesis to inform our theology, but Bobby uh, is an example of someone who is also trying to say, well, how can how can our theology, even our Christology, uh, our Orthodox Christology, inform and help us better understand the exegesis uh, that we're so serious about? Bobby, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast and joining me.
1: Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where
2: doctrine matters.